Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to a very special interview edition of the Empire Podcast. Oliver Stone's JFK is one of my favourite films of all time. And whether or not you buy into the case constructed by Stone in that movie, that President John F. Kennedy was not killed by Lee Harvey Oswald on November 22nd, 1963, but instead by a multifaceted conspiracy involving a number of interested parties, including disgruntled CIA officials, the mob, and high-ranking government figures, we can hopefully agree that it is a scintillating and epic slice of storytelling which marked something of a sea change for Stone in how he operated as a filmmaker. Unusually for such a dense, talky and controversial movie, and perhaps because of the all-star A-list cast that Stone assembled, including Kevin Costner, Sissy Spacek, Tommy Lee Jones, Jack Lemmon, Joe Pesci, Kevin Bacon, John Candy, Walter Matthau, Michael Rooker, Gary Oldman, Laurie Metcalf, and of course... Wayne Knight, it did exceptionally well at the box office when it was released in 1991, grossing $70 million domestic, and it was nominated for eight Oscars, winning two. Its progressive way of presenting dense reams of information is hugely influential to this day. Stone's career since then has fluctuated somewhat, and when I caught up with him earlier this week on Zoom, it was interesting to hear him attribute that, to some extent at least, to the impact of JFK. But we'll get to that soon enough. The reason Stone and I were chatting again on Zoom, so bear in mind there will be a bit of audio ducking here and there, was because he has returned to the directorial fray with JFK Revisited. Through the Looking Glass, a documentary about the JFK assassination in which Stone further develops his theories about cover-ups and conspiracies, aided by new information brought to light by the declassification of thousands of previously redacted documents that originally had been said to be unfailed, as per the Warren Commission, in 2029. But, and here's a positive aspect of the impact of JFK, the hubbub created by the movie in 1991 partially contributed to the implementation of the President John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act of 1992. Now, the documentary is very much in the style of JFK, the movie, with a fast-paced editing style, lots of footage in different stocks, and the voice of Donald Sutherland, who is one of the two narrators, along with Whoopi Goldberg. Stone himself also makes an appearance on mic and on camera, and it is compelling stuff. It is out now in UK cinemas, and I would highly recommend it if you are a fan of JFK, the movie, or JFK, the person, or if you have a passing curiosity at all about what might have happened to Kennedy on that fateful day in Dallas, Texas, or if you're an Oliver Stone completist. What you're about to hear is a slightly condensed version of my interview with Stone from earlier in the week. He is a fascinating figure, incredibly bright, incredibly articulate, still burning with passion about JFK, about Kennedy's assassination and a great many things. And while you may not agree with everything he says, I hope you will enjoy this interview. It is part history lesson, part TED talk about the dangers of big government, amongst other things, and part document of the making of both JFK and JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. I even managed to get a word in edgeways every now and again. Here we go. Oliver Stone. Enjoy. 
We are delighted to be joined on this very special podcast dedicated to JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass by the film's writer and director, Oliver Stone. Good morning, uh, Chris. It aired last night in the States on Showtime, obviously coinciding with, with the, the anniversary of JFK's assassination. Right. What was that like for you? How was, what's the reaction been so far? I uh, try to avoid that. I mean, my, my producer says very good, of course. And, the, you know, the, the people who respond to, to uh, on Twitter and all that stuff, you know, we're getting positive. But, of course, you never know, you know, what people think. Yeah, it's the worst thing you can do is chase a reaction, you know. It's so far, no one has challenged us on the what's in the film. They attack, in America anyway, they're attacking me for uh, really ridiculous things. I mean, it's superficial. One person from Rolling Stone said that uh, uh, that it was a Russian disinformation plot, the, the, the concept of the CIA working against de Gaulle in France, which is actually the story put out by the CIA back then. And, there's, and the guy is still unearthing that and using that against the film. Our sources are Chicago Tribune, among others, but that's the American sources. There's a lot of French sources that wrote about this. Andre Malraux, who was the Minister of Culture, knew about it. Uh, people inside the De Gaulle, that was a big deal in France that there was a coup, a coup d'etat that was declared by this general in, in Algeria. And he lost his credibility after a few days, but it was a real battle at one point. And De Gaulle was really threatened. This was before the attempted assassinations. This was the a coup d'etat attempt. And Dulles had his fingers around it. And then Dulles had a long relationship with De Gaulle, didn't like him. And as we know, had supported the fascist, uh, the fascist general in World War II, the French fascist general. I'm, I, we're getting off on the wrong point here. <laughs> but Dulles was a very, was very fascist as a character. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm I, I had read that piece in Rolling Stone. Uh, I read it today, and I was uh, I was I was certainly surprised by it. Uh, it because one of one of the chief things it seems to be saying is that uh, you're not presenting an alternative alternative point of view in the movie. I've always been accused of that, but you know they they presented their point of view so often and so much and in such volume that whatever space we can get, we have to present our point of view. Is that something that that inspired you to? Returned yes. to this the subject in 2013 at the 60th anniversary of his death. Uh, all the networks in America were presenting this uh, Warren Commission bullshit as 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 holy writ. There was no alternative uh, solutions given. They interviewed me, uh, Tom Brokaw, big shot from NBC, mm -hmm. interviewed me for an hour plus, and I gave him I gave him the works. I was very good. I thought cut it down to. 50 seconds a minute and what i was saying was superficial so you know you can't get out there you can't get out there you have to deal with this dirty it's dirty pool you know it's part of the big lie that continues on this case it's a big lie kennedy killing was never satisfying to the american public all the major intellectuals people who knew better were talking about this very early as early as 64 5 6 and 7 those were the years when this stuff was really coming there was a revolt uh, of the minds against the nonsense of the Warren Commission. And then after the, it's true, the Garrison trial did put it all back, it did fall back into oblivion because Jim did not succeed. And of course, he was ridiculed beyond belief. 
and that it went into this oblivion. But the truth was that he had unearthed many interesting things in his losing cause. And that's what we tried to resurrect when we made the movie. He'd written two good books, and we based it on that. Anyway, the movie was a success, as you know, and that led to a huge amount of desire for reinvestigation. And that led to the uh, an act of Congress, which is very rare, uh, creating a records review board to declassify and do limited investigation again into this murder. And that led to a lot of documentation, actually, that was released, something like uh, 60,000 documents. Unfortunately, the, the media did not cover it. It was too detailed. It was too obscure to them. They were younger, another generation of journalists, and it, con- it got lost. So before I die, I figured with, figured with my Rob Wilson, my pr- co-producer, and Jim DiEugenio, who's a wonderfully uh, a great memory, a, a, a re- assassination researcher, I suppose you'd call him third generation, but he's been working at this. He remembers everything he's ever read. He's quite amazing mind. And we've been able to put together this, this film as a record, as a legacy piece, just to remind people that this thing did happen and in time and that there is a record of all this malfeasance. Hmm. I'm proud of it. You know, I realize it's not a film. It's a documentary. And I know that there's limitations there. And it hasn't been run in any, it wasn't financed by anybody in America. It was financed by English company, mm-hmm. Ingenious, thank God for them. Very in, inter, an innovative company. And it was not distributed in America. It was, we went to the Cannes Festival and we had wonderful, sold 10 countries, wonderful reception. We went to the Deauville Festival. We went to the Rome Festival. Always good results, but nothing in America. No publicity at all, hardly. And we've gotten alternative publicity. and. Not really much in the mainstream, anything really. Maybe you, if you consider Rolling Stone mainstream, I guess that's the only thing we've ever gotten there. But uh, it's, it's a case that people want to turn. It's a memory hole, basically. Yeah. People want to forget. And I understand that. They don't want to. They say, what does Kennedy have to do with what's going on today? Well, you have to, you have, to have a sense of history to understand that. Because unless you can understand the past, you can't, you're going to be confused about the present. And that, it's obvious to any historian. The documentary both uh, it begins and ends with footage of Kennedy. And there's a sense it runs through not just the documentary, but through JFK, uh, even though that's not about JFK. But there's a sense that you're lamenting his loss and still are lamenting his loss. And there's a sense of what might have been had he lived. Yeah. You know, you could call me a nostalgia buff or something like that. But, mm. you know, I, I, I'm, I'm old enough to recognize all the signs that are wrong from from world war ii on america's taken a stranger and stranger course and you have to realize and look at the big scope of history here kennedy comes along he's a young man he relates to the old liberalism of that time which was the frank franklin roosevelt administration four terms that was quite something and the republicans the conservatives in our country never recovered from that they hated him so much that they feared Kennedy for the exact same reasons. Kennedy was a shaker-upper. He was, he was of the rich class, but he wasn't representing the rich class. He was going against the rich class. He was taking on business. And above all, he was taking, and he was taking on the Cold War. He was also taking on civil rights. That's another issue. But he, he was taking on the Cold War, and that was a huge issue because it was financially lucrative to the conservative, to the Republicans, to keep this Cold War going. It was a, it was a I've always 
maintained, many people have maintained that the Cold War was hype. It was hype from the beginning. The, the Soviets were dead in the water. They were completely exhausted from the war and broke. And they needed money. We promised, Roosevelt had promised them money and then Truman suspended it in, in mid-shipment. It was just dirty pool. And they, the moment Roosevelt died in April of 45, the whole thing changed. The whole thing changed. And we go into depth on that on the untold history of the United States. You have to see that to understand the, the context of this. And when you do, you'll understand that the country went very right to the right in 45. And then it continued on with Eisenhower through the buildup of the military industrial complex. The reason being that if we have, they were so scared of another depression, you know, that if we build up our military economy by militarizing it, just like Mr. Hitler did in Germany, it will work in this country. And it did to a certain degree. It doesn't work long term. So they built up an American economy that was militarized. And by 1960, it had reached a peak of madness, it seems, because the military people, uh, the generals, the Pentagon, were ready. They, they had so much more weapon. We had so much more weaponry than the Soviets. We were scared of the Soviets. That they were going to come up and try to backswipe us. Hmm. And uh, Kennedy ran as a coal warrior. It's true. He had to. He couldn't get elected otherwise. And But the moment he got into office, to his credit, he sent McNamara over to the Defense Department and he tried to find out, is there really a missile gap? And he found out McNamara said, no, we're way ahead in missile, missile superiority. You know, every way we're way ahead. So it was a lie. It was a, the whole Cold War was built on this lie that the Russians are always catching up to us and about to overcome us. And we have to spend 10 times more money than they do. Our budget's 20 times bigger than theirs, almost 20 times bigger than theirs. We have to spend all this money to prepare for war. Preparing for war is much more lucrative than going to war. It's work because when Kennedy died, no American president since him, not one, and you can name any instance of it, not one has taken on the military industrial, has taken on the intelligence agencies. No president has cut their power, cut their budgets like Kennedy did or tried to. Mm. And since there is a warning given to the that those two sectors the, of the American government were off, off, off limits. You couldn't go there. You, you, you say you have it in the uh, in the documentary. You, you talk about that that quote where Kennedy said he would smash the CIA into uh, a million pieces, uh, and you even you show you show the impact he he had and would have had on the CIA as oh, well yeah. going forward. Significant cuts. He got rid of the top three people. And he, and he was planning to, to make those budget cuts. They were going to, they were going to take, take a lot of that agency down by at least 20%. But he didn't clean the house because uh, uh, all, the, all the loyalists, Sedullis, were left. And then by that, I mean, we have to include Richard Helms becomes a number two man right away to McCone, who's the political appointee. That Kennedy, Helms runs the agency. He knows where all the secrets are. The bones are buried. And he's a big... Dulles man and a big coal warrior hates the communists, thinks they're a threat to his life, and uh, is going anything possible to to uh, destroy them or beat them. So it becomes this Wall Street. These Wall Street people, and a lot of them came from Wall Street, were terrified of uh, communism as it started in 1970. Always have been, and uh, have maintained a hostile. You know, in America when. When the communist revolution happened, there was what 10, 11 armies that went into into uh, Russia to to destroy the revolution. 
Poland was a leading aggressor. England sent troops, and England was no England was very hostile to uh, communism, as and the United States was also. But they sent troops also. Wilson sent troops. There's a whole st- history of this thing, but this thing never went away. Roosevelt was the first one who recognized the the Russian. Uh, revolution, who recognized the regime. The Soviet Union was recognized diplomatically. So when Kennedy makes all these references to Roosevelt, and and he makes these references to what Russia suffered in World War II, pointing out the casualties, he's doing a service to us at his peace speech. He's telling us, we don't have this enemy. They have done as much to end World War II as anybody did. They actually won World War II, you could say. And Kennedy wants to have an era of peace, cooperation, not a Pax Americana. He says it very clearly, not a Pax Americana enforced by American weapons of war. Have you ever allowed yourself to think about what might have happened had he had he lived, what he would have done? Yeah, sure. Was, there would have been no Vietnam War for sure, because he was clearly from what we are, de- and we show this in the film, there's new declassifications, but it shows clearly that I wasn't crazy back in 91 when I said that he had no intention of going into Vietnam. He was withdrawing troops already. He made the first gesture, couldn't do more in the first term. If he'd gotten that second term, he said to himself, a lot of changes were going to happen. Among them, there'd be no Vietnam War. He wouldn't go into Cuba. So why should he go into Vietnam? Is was his logic. I mean, that's 6,000 miles away. So he wouldn't go into Cuba, and that was a big thing. That was his real violation in terms of the, the people who hated him. He was considered a traitor. He was considered chicken, soft on communism. And you hear that in, in the, you sense that echo in the film, that the people who really dis- disliked him, and there was a lot, felt he was a coward, soft. And, uh, and from a Although filmmaker. A very, by the way, he had a valiant war record. Uh, it was a, really a truly, uh, he'd been to war, and that was the thing. He didn't respect the generals because some of them he knew were, you know, were, were pompous. They, he knew that he didn't trust the generals. He had to see it with his own eyes. And I think to a certain degree, that's the same policy. The problem we have now is all the generals, we have so many generals in our country with all their fruit salads on their chest. We, you know, NATO and all this. <laughs> No congressman is able to, to even challenge uh, the military to say, who are you guys? You know, mm. this is the this is the Wizard of Oz time. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I can see why you feel a kinship with him, having both been to war, having seen yeah. the horrors of war. What I saw it was a complete military fuck up. The bureaucracy in Vietnam was in, insane. They, they, they did everything possible to lose the war. It was the biggest scandal, money scandal. And I imagine it's the same thing was true in Iran. Iraq and in Afghanistan. I mean, they're more concerned about shipping PXs out to these places and taking care of their troops than they are in getting anything done. It's a, it's a, it's a really, America fights wars the same way it builds, it builds bureaucracies. It just sends, it builds cities into these countries. You, you send Las Vegas over to Vietnam or to Iraq, and you think that's going to solve the problem. It's not going to from a filmmaking point of view, uh, Oliver, I, I, I wanted to talk about how you approach this. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask about how you approach this documentary. As someone who I, I adore JFK, and I think that the Mr. X sequence is one of the great expository sequences in cinema. Um, did you, and this is not quite a two hour version of that, but it certainly does take some of that style. And extrapolated over two hours. Was that was that where you began? 
Not really, no. Uh, but uh, it's nice of you to think so. It's just, it was, no, we approached it conventionally. We had a whole, we had a first team of editors that went into it and uh, we made a four hour version. And frankly, it was too detailed, too specific. The four hour version was not, we couldn't sell it. So we backed away. It couldn't sell it in America. Wow. Uh, and I, we felt, you know, it was, I liked it, but it was wonky, what they call wonk, wonk material. So we went back and a new editor, a new team approached it. And we did a two hour version, which is the one that is in theatrical right now. But we are going to release the four hour in the United States and in, it's in England, uh, or pretty soon it's going to be in England. You know, the four hour will get out there. And I think it's just a little more detail and even more detail. And some of the stories are pretty sad. But anyway, there's two versions. And uh, we approached it like a documentary. I was really involved in, you know, I tried to, uh, we were working on it just like a documentary. I, I can't say, just keep the interest going, keep the, keep the information flowing, keep it so that it's easy on the mind to understand. Now, that's always an issue. Some people say, this is even too thick with information. You can imagine what the four was like. And the problem is, of course, people don't remember a lot of these things who are younger people. So you have to reach a younger audience. And were you thinking uh, entirely of reaching a new audience with this? Or were you allowing for the fact that people who saw JFK and loved JFK would be watching this as well? Sure. I mean, it's a big audience in terms of worldwide because there is a devoted audience to that. But there is a whole new younger generation that don't know. It's a, it's, it's a problem that you have, but I hope, you know, that of course, Warner Brothers doesn't really do much with the original film. They don't re-release it and stuff like that. So there's not much help there because it's a new regime at Warner Brothers too. Everyone's scared of the film to a certain degree because it's, what does it say? There was a coup d'etat in the United States in 1963. The country is not the same since then. And democracy, of course, it's in name only. Uh, so, you know, it's a scary thing for these companies, these giant companies now to, to get involved. So I, they back away. They'd rather not raise. That's the problem with our world. <laughs> They'd rather not raise things that disturb people about the American empire. Great. That's taboo still. You can, I mean, you can criticize America and for all the Netflix documentaries and this and that. You can criticize it on social levels, but you can't go after its essence, its military essence and it's 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 intelligence agencies that's where them that's where the real soul of this thing lies so there's no there's no there's no challenge to it and filmmakers have to go along we've been kind of bullied you know there's no what filmmakers are attacking any of this stuff maybe mckay he's one of them made fun of it well and with vice but i haven't seen much mm. The other film, there was another film the Mar about Mauritania with Jodie Foster film was very good, I thought, the Mauritanian. Yes. But that really got to it. And there's been a few, but they're attacking the war on terror. After after JFK comes out in, in a, a tail end of 91, we're almost at the, uh, the 30th anniversary. It does incredibly well. It has eight Oscar nominations, wins a couple. It, it, I think it was the sixth highest grossing movie of that year. Um, did you feel at that time, was there, was, did you get blowback after the fact Oh, yeah. Or was it the fact that it was so successful that that, that, that inure in you in a way for, for a while? Well, in a way, it screwed up my career. I'm not complaining because I was very proud of the film and happy that it did so well. I was disappointed with the Oscars. Obviously, it was too controversial. And there was a lot of attacks at the last minute from 
Washington figures. And even Jack Valenny, who was ahead of the motion picture board, attacked the film because he'd worked for Lyndon Johnson, you know? So uh, it was like very difficult to get, especially around Oscar voting time, all these advertisements started to appear. It was very difficult for me. It was painful. Uh, I had I had been a filmmaker. I My habit was to make a film and then write another one or start continue writing, continue editing, but work on the next one. But I was unable to because I, for six months after this film came out, not only that, six months before the film came out, there was huge attacks in the Washington Post and start, and other publications were picking up the drumbeat that this is a lie. This is, this is going to be uh, more nonsense. It was very bad. And then we had to get our own PR campaign to fight back. Uh, and the Warner Brothers management was very bold and they were, they were strong, Terry Semmel and Bob Bailey, and they actually backed the film all the way down to the Oscars. But we only won two Oscars for, for editing and cinematography, mm-hmm. I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was disappointing. And of course, over time, there's been not much support. It's a three-hour, 10-minute movie. It did run and it's been successful, but over time, the big TV outlets, you know, they, they don't play it that much. So it's, it will be forgotten. But there's always hope that it can be remembered, you know. Uh, it's a special film. But my career didn't, from that moment on, I would be judged, really, as a political filmmaker. Although I made other types of films, I was judged in another way. I always felt that. And I don't think that was, it was helpful to my career, actually. Although I'm very proud of it, but it's a different kind of specialty. Like I became more of a specialty. Mm. It's interesting because obviously you you went perhaps not straight into heaven and earth, but that not straight. No, I lost. Yeah. I, I lost a year. I went, I, doing all these, defending the film, going everywhere, to selling it abroad, and here uh, when heaven and earth came out about a year and a half later, a year and a half later, two two years later. Uh, it was not very well received, although I still love that film. It's about a Vietnamese woman, villager, and her travails on the Vietnam War, Americans and Viet Cong. She goes back and forth. Interesting film. Yeah. So the the reaction, that the reception that JFK didn't, it was, it was a slow burn uh, in terms of its impact on your career. Critics were mixed, yes, but some of them were very good and really pushed it. Uh, but uh, the you know the usual institutions no, they were tough on it. But it, it has a, an immediate impact, Oliver. I mean, it 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 contributed to the the loosening of the cord around all those yeah. the, all those classified documents. As a, as a result, they blame me on the QAnon uh, conspiracy. They think that it's the, the mother of many conspiracies. But it did it did loosen the thinking of people? And it you know the government is not to be trusted. You have to question your government. Because they're not always telling you the truth. Their national interests sometimes differ. In, the, in America's case, it differs radically from what the people want. People don't want war. They don't want this big military. They want to be defend. They want a strong defense. But if you get down to the specifics and you run polls about what people want, the, the people feel one way and the government does one thing. It's just impossible to get the two. So the divergence has grown over time. And here we are now in this new era since Donald Trump and all that stuff. Actually, I blame more George W. Bush than I blame Trump because W. Bush put us on a path when he wasn't even elected. Uh, he, was, uh, he put us on a path of a w- endless war with the war on terror. 
Uh, of course, you you've tackled W uh, quite famously, and uh, do you think you think that's 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 it as far as you're concerned in terms of your unofficial trilogy of American president probably, movies? Probably yes, considering my age and energy required. Yeah, it's uh, I've done a lot in there. W was not as well received as I'd hoped. I'm very happy about Nixon, but again, that was also uh, ignored. Nixon is an interesting film, mm-hmm. uh, but and well worth seeing. Still today, because of so it's a character portrait by Hopkins, and that's amazing, and it's a real feeling of Nixon, which my well, I really was proud of. But uh, making political films is tough, and W also didn't do as well as we'd hoped. So I don't think it's in the cards. Okay, because because uh, Nixon and JFK share certain DNA in that they're both incredibly dense epics. You fit so much information into those movies. And JFK, I think, was a bit of a, a revolutionary film. It's a hugely influential movie. I think it's had an enormous impact on on filmmakers uh, in terms of the, the, the visual grammar and, and the way the film is edited. JFK Revisited does the same thing. It has a lot of information. As you say, it, it packs a lot into two hours. Um, can you talk about your approach to that, was that something that, going back to the original JFK movie and this, that you almost had to reinvent the wheel in order to, to cram all that exposition and to, in order to cram all that information into a, into well, I had a movie. To reinvent the wheel. We had to reinvent the wheel with the original because yeah. we did. It was insane. And we were putting so much information. And it was important because we, I felt maybe overly defensively that I had to put more information to protect this thesis. So I think I overdid it. I mean, if I look at the film now, I probably would cut some of that material. I don't think it's necessary. I think we've made the point. What would you cut? Oh, there's a lot of stuff that is just, you could cut it and it wouldn't change the impact of the film. Hmm. But I was faced with being on the defensive in a sense. We got attacked six months before we released the film for misinformation for this and that. You know, you become defensive. It makes you defensive. You're paranoid. Uh, we had our script stolen. I mean, there were so many things that happened, you know, that I'd have to write about it, frankly, because I, I, you know, I have to remember all the stuff that happened. It was just, it was traumatic to me because I wasn't used to it. I had never been in a public forum like that. The documentary is different because it was, the information was there. It was a question of D. Eugenio. He wrote it. I didn't write this. Mm. Uh, the, the writing of it is just factual. We just laying out facts, how we put them in a certain order. That is an editing decision. So it's a different feeling for me than the, the original. This That was an original experience. Uh, documentary is, I'm proud of it, but it's not, this, it's not making it. You have to, you, you can't play the tricks you did on, as in a feature film. Hmm. You have to stay straight and narrow, you know, basically. And you have to be very accurate. You've got some very interesting elements in the documentary, one of which is the use of multiple narrators, which I, uh, which I was uh, very, very intrigued by. Uh, you're in the documentary as well, so you're a narrator. Weepy Goldberg narrates, and then Donald Sutherland, which is a wonderful link, a wonderful bridge to, to the movie, JFK, uh, comes in at the end. Uh, can you talk about that approach, where that came from? Well, it was uh, Donald was not in the best of health, frankly. Oh, bless so, and his voice is, is weaker. So I think sometimes necessity is the mother of invention. And Whoopi has a different vernacular, which I love. So she's talking about a lot of the basic stuff from the Warren Commission. And she does it in a very broad, 
accent, her way of talking, it, it, it makes it makes every it makes it sure that you're listening. It makes it clear. She's very clear. Uh, where Donald goes into the foreign affairs and what he was doing abroad, his legacy, the thing, why was Kennedy killed? That's a different subject matter than all the facts of the assassination. So we said, let's have, we'll have Donald do that because that's what he did in the original. The why, why was Kennedy killed? Who benefited? What was the result? And there's a lot more of that in the four hour of Donald's, uh, which I hope you see. But basically, it's, it's robbery. The, the, the why is the most important issue here. It's not who, how, because we can't get all the facts. We can't get all the details correct. We don't really know. We do know that there was no three shots. We know there was more than three shots. And we know there was different directions. So that's what we know for sure from just looking at the Zapruder film and other things. But when you get into the corruption of the autopsy, man, it's maddening. When you get this military autopsy being done by these hacks and they they break every rule of medical science in order to come up with this same thing as true with a bullet they break every rule of gravity every rule of physics in order to say that there's three shots three uh, and uh, in this car it's just impossible that should disturb anybody in terms of going back to jfk the the original movie recruiting this incredible cast did you have conversations with this all-star cast you had, you know, Kevin Costner and Sissy Spacek, Jack Lemmon. Did you have conversations with them about what they believed about JFK's assassination? Did you almost have to convince people to to come on board? Not always, no. Uh, as, with Kevin, yes, he was cautious. Uh, he was very cautious, and uh, I don't blame him. He didn't know much about it, and we gave him as much as we could. We gave him information. He went down to New Orleans. He, he wanted to meet Garrison which he did, and he met several of the other people around, around the assassination. So, uh, and his wife played, a, at that time, played a, a large role in getting him into this film to take a chance because he would come off, I think it was Robin Hood. So it was, it was a big step for him, and he was nervous. But uh, he, was a, he was a yeoman. He did his job. He, he, he carries the film. He's an anchor through the whole film. And uh, it was intimidating for him, I have to say, but he did a good job. And uh, the other actors, uh, maybe a few, a couple were into it, but I think most of them accepted. They knew Jack Lemmon had been around a long time. He, you know, he lived through these events, so he had no qualms about. It. He, he felt something had happened there. Mm. Ed Asner, for example. Ed Asner was uh, devoted. <laughs> yeah, he was devoted to the cause, uh, but he, I had him play a conservative, uh, a pugnacious conservative. Very much so. And uh, I, I just want to finish off by asking you about that sequence, the Mr. X sequence that I mentioned earlier on, um, because it is it's astonishing. It's 14 minutes. It's a monologue. It's got so much dense, uh, dense information, exposition. Donald yeah. Sutherland is amazing in that. And what's, what's fascinating about it as well is that Costner basically just listens. It's very rare, very, very rare for a, a leading man to do that. Um, what are your memories of, of crafting that sequence? I'm aware of that. I'm, I'm aware of that. And, 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 you know, as a screenwriter, I was a little bit, I said, you know, I have to have more repartee. But it's when I first heard this from uh, Fletcher Prouty, who was a colonel in the Air Force, who was a focus point officer between the CIA and uh, the Air Force. He was one of the, he was the guy who provided the hardware to the CIA for these operations in Tibet wherever they needed it in, in Ukraine, uh, they'd been using hardware. They needed military help. You understand, it's a paramilitary deal. So uh, 
when I heard it from Prouty, it was I was that kind of stunned. It was much bigger. Now Garrison has it in his book, but he'd spoken to Prouty and people like Prouty, so he had a, a vision of this thing, and I think it was a correct vision. But uh, Prouty let, put in all the details because he knew all the characters. He knew Dulles. He knew all these people from World War II. He'd been a, uh, he'd been a, a, an officer in the in the Air Force then, so he'd been around and he he knew the change in the Pentagon. He said uh, after '63, after that moment. The Pentagon was different. It was just a new kind of resignation of a despair gave in the, the whole country sagged. Uh, Prouty, uh, listen, silent, I'm very lucky because I went to Brando and I was made a mistake because I realized I'm sure I'm glad Marlon passed because he never would have gotten through this thing alive. I mean, it would have been a 25 minute scene at least, and it wouldn't have happened. And he was smart and smarter than I was. And, I was very lucky to stumble onto Donald because he talks fast. He's a Canadian, very bright, gets it and, and spits it out. And he understood that he'd done a lot of films. He knew that films required this kind of pace in order for the audience to keep up. And he does it at the right speed. In other words, you may not understand everything, you may not, but you hear it, you get the mood. And that's the way, that was the only way to solve this problem. Otherwise, I would have had to cut. I would have had to cut. In fact, the original screenplay, the, the Mr. X character appears twice in the middle of the film to give it that bump up and at the end to, to conclude. We didn't need a conclusion. So after what we went through, so we moved the, the end to the middle. And if you look closely in the film, there are clothing changes in, in Donald Sutherland's character and Kevin Costner's character, but you won't notice it the way it's cut. So we're very lucky to have Donald uh, do this, yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Well, uh, Oliver, I could talk to you about JFK and JFK Revisited all day, but I've got to let you go. It's been an absolute pleasure, sir. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Chris. Fantastic. Thank you, Oliver. Take care. And that was Oliver Stone. I hope you enjoyed it. As I said earlier, JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass is out now in UK cinemas. The regular Empire podcast out today featuring guests John Leguizamo, Adam Driver and Chloe Shaw is also out right now for you to listen to. So... Check it out. If you don't already listen to the Empire podcast, like, subscribe, and leave us a nice five-star review on iTunes if you feel so inclined. And if you don't, hey-ho. You know what? Let's just forget that I even asked. Anyway, on that note, I am off to sit on a park bench and wait for a man in a hat to come and tell me about the secrets of the universe. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.